Well, this morning we're going to take a break from the Gospel of Mark and turn a few pages forward in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, where we'll be throughout the, uh, the next four weeks uh, leading up to Christmas. Uh, we'll be spending these weeks of preparation for Christmas in what is commonly called the prologue of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Today, our uh, focal text will be John 1, verses 1 and 2. So open your Bibles and find your way to John's Gospel, chapter 1, very first two verses. The first lines of great books have a way of sticking in our minds and are often easily recognizable. For instance, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. That comes obviously from the hobbit. The line, call me Ishmael, comes from Moby Dick. It was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. First line of what book? 1984 by George Orwell. You'll need to go pick up a copy on your way home today and read it. This is one that's probably fewer of you know, but maybe some of you kids may pick it up. If you're interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off reading some other book. Lemony Snicket, Series of Unfortunate Events. I heard that from not young people, from older people. That's good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Obviously, from Genesis, the first lines of the Bible. First lines of great works have the capacity to tell us so much about the story that follows in just a few words. They have the capacity to hook our attention or to lose it. Have you ever picked up a book, read the first line, and thought, never mind, I'm putting that away? They have the ability to set the tone for everything else that comes in the following pages. No less is true when it comes to the first lines of John's gospel, his story, his biography of Jesus. And it's to the first several lines of John's gospel that we turn our attention this Christmas season. As we uh, come to the first two verses, a sermon I've titled, The Word is God, you'll see why in just a minute. John introduces us to Jesus, but he introduces us to Jesus in an unconventional way. He introduces us to the Word. And the Word, who we know he's speaking about, is Jesus, and we'll get there. But the Word is the personal, pre-existing God who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. That's how John begins his gospel. The main idea of these two verses may be more simply stated, and for our purposes today, is this, that the eternal and uncreated Word is God who became human at Christmas. This is where John is, is leading us. In light of what we see in God's Word in in John 1, verses 1 and 2, I hope today that, that more than anything, we would come to see that this grand story of God sending His Son to be among us, to give Himself for us, is is not just a story for our entertainment. It's not just a story to grab our attention, but it's a story that's meant to intersect our lives, our story, and so also transform them and bring them in line with God's story, His intention for us. I would ask you as you're comfortably able, would you please stand as we honor God by reading His Word, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. John the Apostle, disciple of Jesus, leader in the early church, writes these words in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Now, it may seem odd to begin a Christmas series 
with what has been affectionately called the, the prologue to John's gospel. It isn't like the beginnings of Matthew's or Luke's Gospels, which are more grounded in the biography of the man, Jesus of Nazareth, his announcement by angels, his conception in Mary by the Holy Spirit, the trek to Bethlehem, his inauspicious birth in a tumble-down stable, his praise sung by angels and shepherds alike. John's Gospel starts with a very different beginning. His gospel starts with the beginning a lot longer ago, even than Matthew or Luke's gospels start. His starts with the beginning before the beginning of all things. And he doesn't start with the name Jesus, and he won't mention the name Jesus until verse 17 of the prologue, though we know that this is who John is ultimately talking about in verses 1 and 2. No, John begins by talking about the Word. You probably notice that these two verses sound sort of interesting. There's a repetitive nature to them. There are visible parallels in the words that are used in the first part of verse 1 and all of verse 2. There's a, almost a sing-songy kind of rhythm to John's writing in these first two verses, and it all feels sort of circular, but also building, almost like the phrases are spiraling uh, around and over one another, but also reaching up, stacking on top of one another, reaching heavenward in the way that John writes them. All of this, friends, is no accident. John is writing this way on purpose and for a purpose. He's introducing us to Jesus this way because from the outset of John's biography of Jesus, John the Apostle and the disciple of the Savior is wanting us to see and understand a particular set of truths about the identity of Jesus. John likely wrote his biography of Jesus two to four decades after Mark, Matthew, and Luke had already written theirs. Maybe even 20 or more years after all those guys died martyrs' deaths, John is writing. John likely knew of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he isn't trying to copy them. As you read through all of John's gospel and compare it to what are commonly called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called synoptic because they all have a similar perspective on the life of Jesus. As we read uh, John's gospel in comparison to, in contrast to the others, we see there's, there's quite a lot different. There's quite a lot the same, but the way John writes and the things that he's pointing out about Jesus are a little bit different, not contrary, but different from what the synoptics are doing. John, knowing of these other Gospels, is not trying to do the same thing as them, but to give a theologically rich telling and interpretation of the life of Jesus. It's almost like as we read through John, that John is pulling back the veil for us to understand what things are going on behind the scenes in Christ's life so that we can take in all of the spiritual truth of every event in Christ's life that John records. The first verses of his gospel may sound somewhat philosophical and abstract as you hear them or as you read them on your own. I mean, just hear them again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John, though, is, in writing this way, is not aiming to be confusing about who Jesus is. Quite the opposite. John's trying to be as clear as possible about who Jesus is. He introduces Jesus to us, not with his human name, Jesus, but he introduces Jesus to us as the Word. In Greek, that's the language that John spoke and wrote in. In Greek, it's logos. Now, some people want to say logos, but my Greek professor told me to say logos. So that's what I'm going to say. Logos is the Greek word that means 
word. It means a, a matter, a topic, a, a, an issue. It's a, it's a word that has a broad range of meaning, but most plainly it means word. But in the culture of John's day in 80 or 90 AD when he's writing this gospel, a number of different things had come to be understood about the word, about the logos. Philosophers and theologians alike had used that word, that term, logos, as a stand-in for other ideas. Mark, uh, John is not the first one to do this. Stoics. The Stoics were a philosophical group that began around 300 years before Christ. But they maintained even popularity, their influence, popularity in the day of Jesus and the day of John as well. And they used the term, the Stoics used the term logos to characterize the reasonable and rational way that the world seems to be put together. There's a design and intentionality. There's an orderliness to the cosmos. The logos, the Stoics said, was that organizing principle of the universe, that impersonal but transcendent reason for everything. I can imagine some modern physicists might be inclined to appreciate this view, seeing laws of physics and the way that they seem to govern our universe. That's not altogether different from perhaps some of the way that Stoics viewed the Logos. Now, some of you who are physicists are probably going to undoubtedly correct me on this later, but that's fine. Just wait till after the service. So the Stoics, the Stoics saw the Logos as, this, as, as the, the, the impersonal reason for, for everything being the way that it is. The Greek culture at large, what we might call Hellenism generally, understood the Logos, as one historian describes, as that which is being without time. In the ever-repeating cycle of the universe, the Logos releases creative and destructive energies. Then it folds everything back into itself in a process that has no beginning and a process that never ends. The Logos, Hellenists would say, is not a person, but a, a metaphysical reality. I can imagine some New Age spiritualists connecting with this view today. There's one Jewish philosopher named Philo, who lived in Alexandria in Egypt from 20 B.C. to 50 A.D. His life uh, outstretched the life of even Jesus. Philo reasoned that the Logos was something from God, presumably the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the Lord. Philo surmised, surmised that the Logos was something of a mediator, though not a person, but a mediator between God and man. Now, Philo was undoubtedly drawing on the use of the word of the Lord from so many Old Testament references to make this conclusion. To be sure, the word of the Lord, we see that phrase appearing all over the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in Genesis 15. It was the foundation of Israel's laws and the Ten Commandments in Exodus. It was the source of the prophet's authority. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and said, fill in the blank, a key, uh, the word of the Lord was a key to wisdom and, in, and enlightenment as we see in the Psalms and in Proverbs. The word of the Lord, the word of God was what God spoke. And it was how people knew who God was. Evangelical Christians like us often talk about the word of God as the Bible. And that's not wrong. These are God's words for us. But Philo went a step in a different direction to say that the Logos was not just the words, but a sort of impersonal creation and emanation of God, dependent on, on God, unable to act on its own, but mediating between God and people. So it's into a world full of these influences and impressions about the Logos that John writes his gospel. It's a world full of all of this philosophical, this was the philosophical soup into which John is writing his gospel. 
And John is going to tell some very unique things about the Logos, about the Word, that when taken together, defy and explode the definitions of the Logos that the world at the time had understood. In just the first two lines of his gospel, John first tells us that, number one, the Word is pre-existent. The Logos is pre-existent. Now, by pre-existent, I mean the Word was in existence before anything else existed. John notes this twice in our passage, saying that in the beginning, the Word was. This tells us that the Word is uncreated. It exists apart from creation. In this way, the Word is not dependent upon creation, but sovereign over, control, in control over it. And just the way that John begins his gospel echoes clearly another beginning, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we already referenced it earlier, begins the same way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In John's gospel, John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is not by accident. John knows his Bible. He knows the echo that he's drawing on, and he's meaning for us to pick up on it too, to hear that echo too. We're meant to understand that John in his gospel is going back to before the beginning of all things to tell us who and what the Logos is. And just as Genesis begins with the creation of the world, with the assumption of the uncreated God behind it all, the Bible never defends God's existence and it never tells us where He came from. Uh, it just tells us He always was. So also John is saying the same thing about the Word, the same thing about the Logos. The Word exists before anything else existed. The Logos was around before there was ever any time or space or a universe. The Logos was and is where only the eternal God was and is. If you like the word eternal, you can use that for the word that John is speaking about. Eternity is not a concept that we can understand very well as humans. We can understand infinity, right? Numbers stretch on and on without end in positive and negative directions in a logical way that our minds can grasp. Now, you may not be able to count them all out in your lifetime, but you know that numbers just keep going. You just keep adding zeros and zeros and zeros. Eternity is like infinity in that it has no end, but it also is not like infinity in that eternity has no beginning, Every child, every teenager, every 40-year-old goes through that phase where they want to know why about everything. You give any command, any rule, any instruction, any explanation about something in creation, and the response to that will be from someone at some point for a season, why? And then you'll offer another explanation. And the question comes back again, well, why? And you'll offer another explanation, and another, and another, until you get to like the base and the beginning of all things, and you're forced to say to that blessed child, that blessed teenager, that blessed 40-year-old, I don't know. <laughs> if a child asks you what comes before zero, you can say negative one, and on and on you go without end. But when it comes to the world we live in, when it comes to our place in history, when it comes to the foundation of mathematics, the order and the origin of the universe, we all have to come to the place where we say, eventually, I don't know. Because we're not eternal. We're subjects of creation. We live in this, in this limited world, this physical world. We don't know what it is to be separate from it. So eventually we all get to a place where we say, I don't, I don't know. But this is not the case with the Word. The Word is pre-existent. The Word, the Logos, as John begins his gospel, tells us is eternal. 
The Word, John says, has no beginning because the Word's existence is not dependent on time and space. Time and space are dependent upon the Word. The Word, John says, cannot be like that of the Stoics. It can't be like the Logos of the Stoics because the Word cannot be explained or constrained by human rationality or reason. It's not dependent on what we understand of it. The Word is something else. The Word is pre-existent. John tells us further that the Word is personal. The Word is personal. John explains this plainly with one little word in English that we translate as with. The Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. But the sense of the way that John writes it is something more like not just with, but the Word was toward God or the Word was God-word. It implies that the Word is in relationship with God. The Logos is not just something that proceeds from God, like Philo of Alexandria argued, but the Logos is with God. The Logos is in relationship to God, which implies that the Word has some will and intention of its own, but a will that is God's will, like perfectly synced up with God's will. But more than that, we see that the Word is not an it, but the Word is a he. This becomes clearer in the verses that follow, but it's here in verse 2 as well. He was in the beginning with God. The Word was not some universal force. The Word, the Logos, was not even some emanating energy from God. The Word is a person, and the Word is personal. John will go on to give us the human name of the Word. We know it's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. That's where John is headed in this prologue to the man, Jesus. But catch what he wants whoever reads his gospel to understand. The Word who comes as Jesus was a person and personal even before creation. This means that Jesus the Christ was with the Father before creation. That he was in fellowship and relationship with the Father before ever there was a sun or a moon. That there was communion and community between the Word and God ever before humans, much less human language, ever existed. This Word that John speaks about is personal. He cannot be that metaphysical force of Dharma or Karma or the Logos of Greek philosophy that creates and destroys in an endless regenerative but mindless cycle because the Logos John speaks of is a person. But John gets even more specific about the word about the logos. He says the logos is pre-existent, the logos is personal, but also the logos, the word, is God. The word is God. This comes to us in the third part of verse 1, where John says the word was God. Now, John does not mean that the word was, was God then, but isn't now. That's not the way he's using the word was. What he means is that the Word, the Logos, in that realm of existence before time began, there in that place, the Logos was God. And the Logos has not stopped being God. Catch what John is doing. He's equating the Word, the Logos, with the person of God. And by nature of who we know the Word becomes when He takes on flesh, John is saying that Jesus is God. And understand, John does not mean that the Word, that Jesus, is of just some divine essence, as though He were God-like or God-ish or some other lesser God in, in, the, in the, the stream of a divine pantheon. No, John is saying that the Logos, the Word, 
is of the same divine essence, the same divine stuff as God. That is to say, whatever it is that makes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob God, whatever it is that makes Yahweh, Yahweh, well, the Word is that too. Jesus is that too. Now you're sitting here thinking, duh, Stephen. We're Christians. We know that. We believe in the Trinity. We believe that there's one God existing in three co-equal and co-eternal persons whom the Scriptures identify as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and not different gods, but the same God, but neither are the three persons interchangeable. Interchangeable identities of God. For the Father is not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father, and so on. But all three exist in, in an equal, as equal and distinct persons of the one Godhead. That's easy, Stephen. We know that. But it wasn't always easy, you understand. Just about 1,700 years ago, almost exactly, near the year 320 A.D., a Christian teacher by the name of Arius began to teach Christians that the Word of God, the Logos, the Son of God, was not wholly divine, nor was he preexistent, but something less than that. Arius was teaching his teaching was characterized as follows by um, someone who opposed him, but he said this is what Arius was teaching, that God was not always a father, but there was a time when God was not a father. The word of God was not always, but originated from things that were not. For God, that is, has made him that was not of that which was not. There, wherefore, time, wherefore, there was a time when he, when the word, was not. For the son is a creature and a work, Arius said. Neither is he like in essence to the Father, neither is He the true and natural Word of the Father, but He is one of the things that is made and created. Wherefore, He is by nature subject to change and variation, as are all rational creatures. This is what Arius was teaching the church 1,700 years ago. The same teaching of Arius, that the Word, that the Son is not God, is repeated today, particularly among Jehovah's Witnesses today who in their translation of the Bible, it's called the New World Translation. I would not recommend you go out and buy a copy of it. It's not a good translation. In the New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witnesses mistakenly translate the last phrase of verse 1 as, the Word was a God. In the beginning was a Word, the Word was with God, and their translation would say, and the Word was a God. This has to do with a misunderstanding of the use and translation of the anarthrous predicate nominative nouns in Greek. None of you care about that except Tom Fisher, and I almost got, he almost became Pentecostal this morning when I said that. <laughs> you may not care, you may not care about the grammatical construction that John is using here, but Jehovah's Witnesses certainly do. And so it's helpful to know that your English translation is correct because, because a lot of people have poured over godly, scholarly, academic people who have given their lives to understanding Greek grammar and syntax have given themselves their whole lives over to understanding the Greek and the, the, the grammar and syntax in which John was writing so that, so that doctrine is correct, so that what we understand about Jesus is correct. Because there's a big difference between the word was God and the word was a God. That difference is one little letter in English, A, but that difference makes but, but that, that letter makes all the difference. Arius was plainly teaching contrary to John's gospel that the Word was God. In fact, he was teaching that the Word was not God. In response to this very dangerous mischaracterization of Christ, the bishop Alexander 
responded to other church leaders in a letter saying this, who has, heard the, who has not heard the words of John in the beginning was the Word, and will not denounce the sayings of these men that there was a time when He was not? Or who that has heard in the gospel the only begotten Son, and by Him were all things made, will not detest their declaration that He is one of the things that were made? And how is He subject to change and variation? Who says by Himself, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and I and the Father are one, and by the prophet, behold me, for I am, and I change not. This significant battle over the claim of Jesus' divinity, over the divinity of the Word, led to the first council of bishops in the city of Nicaea in 325 A.D., the Nicene Council. That may ring a bell in your ears. After searching the Scriptures and comparing the teaching of Arius to the Scriptures, John 1, 1 and 2, near the top of that list of passages considered, the Council of Bishops stated what was the clear teaching of Scripture about the person of Jesus Christ in the Nicene Creed. They said this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. What John is saying here, don't ever tell me Christian history doesn't matter. It matters big time, especially when it comes to our understanding of who Jesus is and a right understanding of who Jesus is. Blessed bishops, Leaders in the church fought hard to preserve precisely what Scripture is saying about Jesus. Not that He is a God, but that He is God. Here's my favorite non-Christmas story, and this one's not in my notes, so it's free. St. <laughs> Nicholas, after whom Santa Claus is, is often named, uh, was a leader in the church. Um, a leader in the church in the same day that this controversy was going on. And he was on the side of the bishops in, in opposition to Arius. And, and it's a legendary story. I don't know that it's based in fact, but I like it, so I'll tell it. There was, uh, at a meeting, um, uh, Arius was there, and there was some back and forth and conversation about uh, who the Word was and whether or not the Word was divine. And the conversation got to such a heated point that, that, that Nicholas was so offended by the heresy being promoted by Arius that he walked across the room and slapped him in the face. There's a meme that goes around every Christmas, and it's my favorite Christmas meme. It's a, an old picture illustration of St. Nicholas, and the words above it says, I'm here to hand out. St. Nicholas was also known for his great generosity to orphans and taking them gifts and caring for them and so on. And in the meme, it says, I'm here to hand out, hand out gifts and punch heretics, and I'm all out of gifts. And... Uh, <laughs> Back to the text. What John is saying in John 1, verses 1 and 2, without equivocation, is this, that Jesus is God. Amen. Some may object, saying, well, John wrote this 
biography of Jesus very late. Stephen, you admitted it, that it comes near the end of the first century. And, and <clears throat> in order to, to justify, to validate the Christian's faith that G, in who Jesus was, he's making up Jesus's identity. He's saying this about Jesus after the fact so that people will keep believing. He's just, it's a self-serving sort of thing. Well, it's true that John did write relatively late in the first century, probably around 80 or 90 AD. But Paul, the apostle, wrote Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul wrote those words much earlier, probably somewhere around 60 AD. And Paul also wrote to the church in Colossae. What we wrote, read is our call to worship this morning. Colossians 1, verses 1, uh, 15 to 20. That he, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created, created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul didn't write that in AD 80 or 90. He wrote that in 62 AD, probably. John, uh, Paul didn't even live to see 80, 80 AD. That's hard to say. He died almost 20 years before John wrote these words. And 20 years before John wrote these words, Paul is saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In writing these things, he affirmed the, the same thing about Jesus that John is saying in his gospel. Not to mention Mark's gospel, which was probably written around 55 AD, 60 AD, which also implies Christ's divinity in a number of points as we've been exploring it over the course of this year. He's called the Son of God, the Son of Man. There's those references. Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel follow the lead of Mark's gospel, and they affirm the same thing about Jesus. And all of those gospels were written probably within 30 years of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and within the lifetime of known eyewitnesses to the resurrection and the life and ministry of Jesus. So what John is writing is not new. What John is writing in John 1, verses 1 and 2, is as old as the gospel. What John affirms about Jesus, he records in the rest of his gospel in a number of places in what Jesus said about himself. In John 8, 58, Jesus said to those who were questioning him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In John 17, verses 4 and 5, Jesus is praying, and he's praying to the Father, and he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. John is also affirming what the author of Hebrews, who was probably neither John nor Paul, what the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He was spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And what John himself heard from God as he saw and then recorded in Revelation affirms the same. Revelation 22, 12 and 13, Jesus, the risen glorified Jesus says to John, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. And John writes in his gospel, in the beginning was the word. So now you're asking, great, Stephen, this is a lot of fun. But what in the world does any of this have to do with Christmas? <laughs> Friends, it has, John 1, 1 and 2, has precisely everything to do with what and who was wrapped up and wriggling around and swaddling cloths in that tumble-down stable in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Amen. That sweet, vulnerable, squishy infant 
cooing in the night, shivering in the cold, smelling of milk and straw and livestock is none other than the pre-existing, eternal, personal God of the universe. The Word stepped into Mary's womb. The Logos grew lungs and limbs. The God of the cosmos came gurgling as a human baby at Christmas. Friends, this is the very glory and mystery of what we celebrate at this time every year. Christmas is our celebration of the eternal God stepping into His own creation of time and space, of the infinite Logos limiting Himself to become human. As human beings, we are are captivated by good stories, especially stories of origin and power. Every new Marvel comic movie tells a story of some hero's origin and their display of power. These stories, though, products of our imagination, they ultimately point to a better story, a true story, a story of a real God who has no origin but is Himself the origin of all things, a God who isn't only interested in humans but who loves them, a real story of a real God who steps into a world broken by His creatures, humans, in their sin, coming into this world to set things right and to set people right. The mystery of Christmas is that the eternal Word became a human man. The glory of Christmas is that the eternal, holy God did all of this to be the source and the substance of our rescue from brokenness that we have created by our own sin and which we all perpetuate by our own sin. This God entered a world with all sorts of wrong-headed and wrongly directed ideas about Himself in order to set the record straight in flesh and blood to tell us with great clarity about who He is, what He is like, and why we should care to know Him. Crazy, unimaginable, mysterious, and confounding as all of that may be, that is precisely the glory of Christmas. The eternal, personal Word who is God came to save us. His birth leads to His sinless life. His sinless life to the cross where He died to pay the penalty and provide the solution to all the brokenness that we bring into the world. And His death led to His resurrection where the Word, where the word made flesh was raised and glorified and kept His humanity as a certain promise that our salvation will not only be spiritual when we trust Him, but physical, tangible, whole when He comes again. And friends, that's more than a story. That's history. History that calls us to respond in faith, in trust, in dependence upon this Word who became man in the person, Jesus. History that calls us to respond in worship of a God who would even think to do something as confounding as that to save us. It's history that compels us and calls us to respond in in mutual love to God who has loved us in His Son, of adoration of Christ and of telling and retelling of the life of Jesus, the Word of God, who is God, who became human at Christmas. John begins his gospel with one line, well, a couple of lines, that absolutely captivate our attention and explode all of our preconceived notions about what what God is like, what Jesus is like, by telling us that Jesus is the Word of God who took on human flesh at Christmas. And this is glorious. This is wonderful. It's mysterious. I don't know how you take the eternal 
and squish it down into a human body. But God did it. And He did it not just to show off, but He did it to save us. He did it to to speak with clarity to us about who He is, to show us in living example what He is like, and then to give the ultimate sacrifice of His own life for those of us who have sinned against God and rejected Him. The glory and the mystery of Christmas is that the Word, who is God, became human at the incarnation. And this is a reality that I hope blows your mind and warms your heart. And you may feel like your brains are oozing out of your ears as you're thinking about all this this morning, but I hope that you also find your soul strangely warmed and comforted by the truth that the Word came for us, that the Logos added human life to His already pre-existent existence in order to save us from sin. What great cause we have to worship at Christmas. What a great story we have to tell to a world that loves stories of rescue at Christmas. The greatest rescue plan ever enacted by the eternal God for sinful human beings through the person of His Son, Jesus, who is the Christ, who is God. Let's pray together and then we're going to respond in a song of worship.